uh, on the ground sources from both ISW and various news circles interviewing the Ukrainian officers themselves on the ground. That's where I'm get. That's where I'm getting this, and, and President Zelensky's own statements and his own numbers. So that's what I'm basing this off of. No, I, so I, I'm sorry. I'm saying who you're. You're saying it's the um, the military with experience. Well, given that the Ukrainian government or, or the uh, Ukrainian MOD has had an open policy pre-war, I'm looking at what units existed pre-war. I'm looking at where they are. I'm looking at the casualty rates in those sectors. And these are the units which had the bulk of their veterans. Uh, so if you look at it's most of the mechanized units, the airborne guys, the Marines. These are these are the standing pre-war formations that saw the bulk of the rotations in and out of the Donbass for the past eight years. These are the guys who had the most uh, combat experience or at least the most you know quasi combat experience, depending on where they were. And then you look at where they're stationed now. And you look at the casualty rates in those areas, and there's, you know, I'm making some logical deductions here, but some of these units are probably getting torn up very bad. All right, look, um, for for um, OPSEC reasons, we have to stop that um, conversation, that part of the conversation. And um, so I'd like to go to Gurney, please. Well, um, th- thanks, Juliana. No, I, I understand some of the, the points, Patrick, that, that you're making. And I guess ju- just to say on this, um, I, I know... Um, when you started the response in, in, in your response, um, you know, you, you, to use the phrase, I know, or, or we know. So you're talking about, you know, uh, you thought, you know, what's happening with Lee Shishans. Now I, I would just make the statement that we don't know. I, I know, uh, you, you're certain in, in your assumptions there. Um, but I would just like to state that, that nonetheless, there are assumptions because we don't know, we can draw, uh, we can infer, we can deduce some things. I, I'll give you that. Um, but I think we should stay away from making absolute statements of certainty uh, when the, when it doesn't exist. Even to some of those commanders on the ground right now, they don't have that level of certainty. So so I, I, I do understand you, you probably have a good feeling of what you think is occurring in, in Lisa Shansk or, or, or the mindset of what's happening. But it, 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 I, I want to pull it back from saying we know because that's that's an impossible thing to, to do. Um, and, and if I just take that and I pull that a little bit further, so talking about losses, we don't know the losses. Again, you can deduce and, and come to analysis, an analysis of that, whether it's the Russians, the Ukrainians, but we don't know with certainty um, in terms of what they are. So I do, I do get your concern for the Ukrainian losses, especially if they're, if they're combat, but we don't know specifically who they are. Sure, we can infer, but those units could have been augmented. Uh, units that you think are being reported in certain areas, maybe, but there may be an info op. So there's, there's a lot of what ifs. I'm not saying you might not be in the ballpark, but if we couch ourselves in saying we know, it lends uh, an exactitude and a certainty that doesn't exist. And so I just keep pulling that back. So, you know, you're talking about combat troops. So if, if, if you're talking about it from a position of you know those losses, which I would argue we don't know, and, and I know that they're important to you and to me, those, those losses are important. However, you're mentioning combat troops, and I'd like to point out for the record that Ukraine has some two mil, over 2 million combat vets, combat experience vets. That is something the Russians do not have and don't have, even from the campaigns in Syria. So the one thing that that is more on the record is the number of troops who have served in a combat role, who have returned or stayed in country and are likely to be supporting or be in units now. Now we don't know how many that is, but a pool of 2 million combat or more, 2 million or more combat experienced troops is a hell of a lot more depth in the bench. Even if I can't specify it and say, you know, it's it's 60% of those or whatever. It doesn't take a lot of 2 million to have experience to say even if 5% or 10% of those are there. So I know we're talking numbers, you know, if, if you're coming up with a certainty of 7,500 or, you know, or or not certainty, that if you're coming up the range and saying you think the losses are this, I'm just saying is, is but take that much larger number. And, that, and I get it. They're they're not active. They take some time to, to get some of the rust off. Um, but I'm not, I, I mean, we shouldn't be fearful um, of what's occurring right now. That is that is the nature of war. There are losses happening, and it sucks. And there's experience being lost. I'll agree with you there. However, don't overlook the fact that their bench 
is much deeper in terms of combat experience than the Russian military has had in this generation. And if you add on to that, the institutional knowledge that is lost from the Russian military that will not be replaced and will not be coming in from any other sector in terms of trainers, training, and whatever equipment issues they face of their own, they're dealing with it on their own. So I, I just don't want to give this overshadowing like, yes, there's concern in that sector, but I think that's looking at too much minutia and making too many assumptions about what's going on and we don't know that. And then we're ignoring the larger deep bench of experience that the Ukrainians have, and that's excluding the support of training that Ukrainians are receiving in Poland and elsewhere. So I, I don't want to like, you know, uh, make make an assumption off of one small thing, and then the, the much larger piece of the pie is just so much bigger than that. But that's all. all and finance, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. Apologies to the entire pleasure. Finance, hang on a second. Is anybody else having a very hard time hearing finance? Because my volume's on so loud. Copy that. Finance, you're going to have to. Is that better? Amazingly better. Continue. Yeah, it was my mic. Sorry. That's uh, local uh, human. Um, sorry. Okay. Now that we're back. Thank you all for being here. Apologies for the space for getting Ryan and I as co-hosts. And for all of our friends in Ukraine, please be as safe as possible, given the situation on the ground. I won't apologize for giving you finance as co-host, but I will apologize for not being totally up to speed on the conversation. I just logged in about three minutes ago. So um, I will humbly back off and let people continue until I'm up to, up to square. Yeah, sorry, we had to swap out co-hosts because Heliana was uh, about to turn into a pumpkin, and she's she's got other commitments. So uh, uh, welcome our new co-hosts, and they'll be here hopefully right up to uh, European handover. Can you all hear me now? Thank you, Mr. Moose. We can hear you great, finance. All right, I'm Twitter. just going to tell these headphones that they're great for listening, but apparently suck for speaking, so life is what it is. All right. Thank you all for being here to all of our Ukrainian friends. I hope you're as safe as possible. And I want to ask a question myself to uh, Ryan, uh, sorry, Gurney, if he's still up here. Yes, he is. Patrick and all Battle Moose, if you're still in the uh, Walter account, uh, this is for you too. So clearly we see Russia doesn't give a flying about its uh, human uh, resources and just sends people to die in a meat grinder. And this clearly has uh, issues with uh, maintaining um, seasoned veterans. It has issues with maintaining institutional knowledge. It has issues with maintaining continuity on the ground of knowledge. These are things I understand coming from, from the business world. Uh, my question is why uh, most casualty accounts seem to report the Russian losses is about 50% higher than the Ukrainian losses, given how incredibly awful they treat their troops. And despite the issues that Ukraine has had in supply and being outmanned and at least out artilleried by sheer volume of shells how are the numbers not even higher um in the ukrainian favor for um deaths on the battlefield given the way that russia operates gurney oh sorry i didn't i didn't uh you're asking if if how, how are the russian battlefield losses not higher is that yeah that it that? seems to be that you the, the numbers seem to put the ukrainians the russians are dying between 50 to some are between 50 to 100 percent, depending on how the numbers look there's lots of estimates the numbers are hazy we can't pin it down because the russians are lying and hiding etc but the estimates seem to put their losses at 50 to 100 percent of the ukrainian losses my question is um, that's pretty bad for the russians but why is it not even worse hmm. let me let me back up to to one of the things in there that you mentioned uh I, that that may have been true early on I, I i would say maybe that was a little bit uh more knowable earlier on or at least that was the the prevailing wisdom um i don't know if we we can tell that as of late i i, I wouldn't doubt that i wouldn't question it. i'm just saying is i don't know that i don't know what it is uh currently um i know that that ground is changing hands at a slower pace uh, more frequently but in in smaller um total areas than than before but to get to your question of uh why, why is it not worse well i mean un the unfortunate reality is is there i mean even if it's the i said this maybe three months ago 
even if they were abysmal or are abysmal, I'm not, I, I'm not going to really make a judgment on, on, on their performance because I know that gets into this, you know, this, this gray zone, but even if they are the most abysmal of performers, um, you know, there's still room for adaptation and innovation, um, especially when it comes to, to, to the, you know, one thinking about, oh, well, I'm, I may die if I don't do this. So, so they may be abysmal, but that doesn't mean that, that they can't be, slightly less abysmal so I, I don't know if that answers your question in terms of why aren't we seeing more um i, I i'm sort of coming out from the opposite perspective is, is they can be they can be as abysmal as they want um and as long as they had had past tense the quantity uh that seemed to, to be enough for them they didn't have to adapt uh but now i think that the reality is is that the, the quantity of the the mobilized Russians and the replacements is just not there on a level uh, that they can keep doing that, that they could keep taking the, the, the ratio of losses they were taking earlier um, and that they're going to be forced to adapt, even if it's small, even if it's minor, and even if it's adapting from abysmal to slightly abysmal, you know, it's, it's, it's still a change. Um, and in my mind, you know, I, I think uh, those ratios are going to change where, because what I'm seeing is, is that the Ukrainians attacking more, uh, the weak areas, so supply depots, um, weak points, right? Line, line, ground lines of communication, uh, rear areas, right? You're, you're seeing some trains derailed. Um, that they're being smarter as opposed to, to, you know, it's it's like two hammers going at it down there um, in the Donbass right now, and you don't always want to do that uh, unless. You know, you're you're forced into the, the the lesser of two bad choices, and so this is why I can't put my head in the in the headspace of what what is happening in the in the larger picture with Lysychansk and Severodonetsk. And on a, on a tactical level, I can say, you know, they they've ceded space, they've vacated recently the Ukrainians, but I can't I can't take it a step further to understand and say, hey, this is why they held Severodonetsk, or this is why it was worth it to do. You know, I can think sort sort of things. Um, but just getting, I'm straying from your question here, but to, to get back to it, um, I stick with the things that, that I can sort of say are more knowable. Um, and the Russians, unfortunately, um, are probably between a rock and a hard spot and they're forced to adapt. Uh, and you're seeing the Ukrainians adapt. And instead of consistently putting two hammers together, I mean, that is happening uh, in, in the, the Donbass sector, um, but you're seeing MLRS strikes and you're seeing attacks on weak points. And that's exactly how you're supposed to leverage asymmetries, right? Um, you don't want to. Uh, you know, go blow to blow. Uh, you want to go blow to blow when you can, and in other areas, uh, take the smart choice. Take take the standoff weapons. Take the uh, supply points. Make them work harder. Slow them down um, and exploit that. So that's that's my bit. Um, Thank you, Gurney. Um, Patrick, do you have anything you want to say, or should we move on to Mister Junfan? We may have lost Patrick. Hey, hey so I'll, I'll go real quick. So hey, all I want to say is is I have uh, I want to hear coming. Um, I have seen the exact same uh, open source intel and other data points uh, from actually people in that area. And so anyway, I'm not, I don't want to get into that, but uh, I really appreciate that insight. And I think honesty doesn't necessarily mean we're, we're negative. It's just reality and we can handle reality. And so, Patrick, thank you for your time and for your comments. I very much appreciated that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, Patrick, you still with us or have you... Uh passed out on us no i'm still here uh i don't know what more i can add when collating open source data and drawing a logical conclusion has people screaming opsec at me like they know what the word means patrick i i don't think that was directed at me i i didn't scream opsec for you I, and 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 my my was it was that go ahead no that wasn't you uh okay. no okay i i just want to say i i i'm only um my my only our difference of opinion here um Patrick, from 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 me to you, is just in the senses, you know. I I know I'm not I'm not trying to sow doubt on on what is open source, uh, but but having been in the sausage, been in the meat, um, it, even when you think something to be true, it's still very hard to know. There's likelihoods, and and so while we have open source information, I would say the granularity of that information and adding that together into a cohesive data set, that's very hard to do. And so I'm not doubting information that people see and information that people get, not, not at scale, right? But I'm saying is, is, but you can't 
know that every bit you're picking is truth or not part of an info op or not part of something else or that somebody else is is saying something they think to be true, but they know not to be true, but they portray it as that. Meaning you take that piece of, of what you think is open source intel from someone who thinks it to be true, but doesn't give you the context and parameters to know it to be true. And when you add up a thousand of those data points or 15,000 of those data points that turn into casualty numbers, that's when you get a very wide variation. And, and, and so my only quarrel is, is when people, and this is not, not to you, but I think June had just mentioned this. So to, to June is when we get in a position to say we know, um, we have to we have to pull ourselves back because we don't. That's unfair. And it's a dangerous position to go off the assumption that what you see, that you can add it together. Because what you see is what a bunch of people want you to see at many different angles, and you'll never ascertain the motivations. So if you simply try to add it all up, uh, you, you may end up more confused uh, than if you had never looked at it. Now, uh, but that's just in general terms. And that, that wasn't to you, Patrick. Uh, that was just to June's comment. All right. Um, thank you, gentlemen. I think we should move on with the discussion now. Uh, Coptelli, welcome to the space. Nice to see you this evening, our favorite Georgian. How are you? I saw you had your hand up. Thank you. Yeah, if, uh, no, I'm not military, so please take it all with grain of salt. Um, but my understanding is if you leave a city, that's precisely because you want to preserve your troops and its institutional knowledge. Now, if you go back to city to give a fight, that's because at this point you need to gain time because you are expecting something to change within that time. And you probably feel more comfortable giving, giving that fight in an urban area or there is an opportunity you could exploit. And, and that's how I see this recent uh, developments in several Donets. Remember, it was left by Ukrainians, then they went in and moved foreign legion in, then they left it again, because arguably Lysychansky is better positioned to hold. And all that may be true. It's kind of, uh, how you call it, mobile mobile defense. Um, so they, they are doing what they could. Uh, are they trying to kill their own troops? I don't think so. They probably try to preserve where it's feasible. At the same time, where they need to give fight, they give fight. Now, what was that time versus pace versus institutional knowledge and troop retaining balance? Um, that, that, that's something for their commanders to, to know, but I still believe they were trying to gain time to get some weapon, which they did. And at the point, and you may even notice by the time they received those MRLS systems, at least first one, they kind of left um, several dots, and they moved from the area where there was a high risk of getting troops encircled. Now, as for Russian tactics, I don't know, uh, of course they they tried to rely more on artillery where they had a big advantage um, and not to send troops uh, immediately because where they did try and send, which was Severodonetsk, they had very heavy casualties. So yes, they are uh, updating their tactics, but what is the cost? They were advancing, what, 500 meters a day? That's merely enough. So uh, again, it depends enough for what. Uh, from for they are like for for Putin, he wants results, but I guess his military they decided to still keep people because uh, situation may change and they may need those same troops to uh, to hold the lines. They just um, they just gain. So, yeah, they also have to make choices uh, between take t town faster and lose three times more troops or five times more troops or, or ten times more troops. Or, you know, allow a little bit more time and save some people because they will need them. Um, they know that it may be hard to get a replacement and it will be hard to get a replacement. 
So that's, I guess, where each one. I'm sorry, Alex, I just muted you on accident. Please go ahead. One day they'll move the add speaker button from the same spot that the mute button is. If a speaker requests and then unrequests while I'm trying to add them, I unintentionally mute everyone. So I'm sorry for interrupting you. I'm sorry. I almost finished. I was just... um... It it wasn't intentional. I was trying to add somebody else to the panel, but go ahead. Liberal's done okay, this like a half so, a dozen times in the past, and I always give him a hard time about it, but here I am doing it again. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that was my point, essentially. Russians are slowing down their advance to save their troops, because if they move faster, they would they would lose three times more, five times more. Because I guess that ratio is kind of general uh, rule of thumb, that if you're uh, in attack, you may be losing three times more than defenders, right? And now that may be, that may change. If you are really rushing your troops, you may lose way more than three times defenders. Uh, and there are, all kinds of other stuff. Now, if you slow them down and let artillery basically annihilate everything before they even move, before your troops even move, you can probably save your people, but then lose the speed. So, yeah, each side is making its own judgment in trying to kind of accommodate. But uh, the bigger picture is, yes, Ukrainians need artillery and ability to win counter-battery fight. They are outgunned, but um, if the quality of weapons they get is better, they can um, compensate a number with quality, um, which I think they started to show. I hope so, Sato. I think we for sure agree with you, Alex, and I hope that uh, you know this, this results in the tide turning sooner rather than later. Liberal, I see your hand is up, sir. Hey, thanks, uh, Finance. Hey, Ryan, uh, I know the struggle. Um, I was going to make a comment earlier, but I didn't want to. I saw that Patrick Fox came up, and I just felt that, you know, he had to have the floor, and my my question could wait or comment, I should say. But I wanted to, um, without oversimplifying the war, kind of make a metaphorical comparison between a matador and a bull. The matador knows that he cannot take the bull head on. So what the matador relies on is drawing the bull in and then at the last minute sliding to the side while getting close enough to deliver a dagger into the bull's neck. And this is repeated over and over and over over again with the goal being that at the end, the bull will collapse, you know, uh, exhausted, bled out, Etc. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, Ukraine is the matador and the Russians are the bull. And, you know, as frustrating as that may be to see this long drawn out conflict, I, I understand the sentiment and the passion of, of, of a lot of the speakers in this space. And it is frustrating. But I think we have to realize that you fight with the army you have right now. The Ukrainians don't have heavy weaponry, long distance artillery. So they're buying time. So if they seed land a strategic fallback, not a retreat, it's because they're trying to find more defensible positions. Not necessarily that this is somehow, you know, uh, a defeat. So that was my comment. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Liberal. Gurney. Hey, thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment and say, um, you know, uh, I I appreciate when people come with with differing views to this space. Uh, it, it expands, it broadens us. Um, you know, in some cases, we we will disagree. Um, but but aside from that, I I just like to say is is um, it's it's I, there's no problem in the disagreements uh, or or discussing it out there. Um, I have a, a bigger concern, and that's sort of that the Ukrainians haven't given up. They don't feel defeated. Um, and, and I guess I know there's a lot of emotions swirling around and 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 it seems like narratives are, are taking shape as of late uh, that that our uh, our outsider views, um, you know, us that are that are that are on the outside of Ukraine looking in um, are, are trying to you know, we're, we're trying to form this basis of understanding 
we wanna we wanna help. We also want to know what's going on. We want to know what's going on so that we can help. Um, and a lot of us, you know, if if there's a feeling of helplessness. Uh, and it's not translated into something we, we intrinsically want to do something. But but I would just, you know, part of my concern is, is that the Ukrainians have not given up, are not giving up. Uh, so why do we it's not about, uh, you know, we, we can talk about if things aren't going the, the Ukrainians way uh, on a day or two in the space. There's there's no one's trying to hide or obfuscate anything. But I guess I'm just trying to say is, is on the larger narrative, sometimes I feel that uh, we're giving up on them or we're making their situation uh, somehow more uh, defeatist than they are. And, and if our goal is to help them and support them, they need our support. doesn't mean we, we, we need to just give them platitudes. It doesn't mean that we, we can't talk about differing opinions here or, or information that, that could work well for one side, not well for the other side. It just means is, is uh, the attitude towards that should, should not be one of, of, you know, resignation because it doesn't seem like it's happening. And, and you know, we're, we're removed from how to disagree in the space. So I, I appreciate that, but I just don't want to, you know, I, I caution that, that sometimes good intentions can, can go awry and, and can get misplaced. Um, and that that uh, can at times be counterproductive to what the Ukrainians themselves are asking for. They're asking for our support. Uh, they're asking for nothing else than that. They're not asking for our boots on the ground. Uh, they're not asking to throw in the towel, uh, and they certainly don't feel that way. Uh, so when we start to act on our emotions or, or feel uh, that there's nothing left to do, I, I would just caution, uh, discuss it out here, discuss it out here. Uh, but emotional or, or, or emotional pleas out there in the narrative um, only do a disservice to the Ukrainians uh, and, and provide and can possibly provide some sort of, uh, you know, knee-jerk salve that, that we can, uh, you know, wash over us to, to make us feel better. But but it's not about us. It, it's about them. And so I respect the different opinions in here. And, and I, I don't, uh, you know, feel like I'm, I'm, I'm couching any of these, uh, you know, my assumptions of what I think is happening. I, I just try uh, to do my best to say I don't know uh, for a lot of things uh, with certainty. And I certainly uh, don't want to give up hope on them because they haven't given up hope on themselves. Thank you. Uh, June, go ahead. Yeah, hey, uh, I got a question for Patrick, but uh, now I don't want to get it back and forth, Gurney, so you don't have to respond to this. Uh, but, you know, the, look, the truth is the truth on certain things, the best we know them. It's nothing to be feared. You know, if we're managing a narrative on either side, that's called disinformation. I just, we're just talking about reality. And if we're not going to let talk about certain things that have been aggregated, particularly what Patrick was saying that I've seen, and I don't want to hear another comment about how many artillery rounds were done, how many BTGs were over here, how many Russian dead are here, because we don't know how many are in each APC, and we're making these assumptions. But anyway, it's just reality. It's, we're not scared of it. If, if it. if it doesn't go the way we want it to for a period of time, that's okay. We just want to be – I just want reality and truth, okay? And and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be very balanced. But, Patrick, I have a question. Do you think it would be advantageous – I know it probably wouldn't play well in the media – but do you think it would be advantageous for a more rapid pullback or somehow to lure the Russians, you know, further off the railhead into a salient, into a line of extension again? Or do you think that probably wouldn't happen, you know, because there's a very good likelihood with this, these two Donbass, uh, Luhansk cities, you know, now occupied that, you know, this is part of their plan. They're eventually going to stop and dig in and have an operational pause and recoup or whatever. They're not just going to keep going. But do you think that's a, that's a viable tactic? Or, or no? Short answer, yes. And that's traditionally the, the way you deal significant casualties to the Russians. You retreat. I mean, the Germans used to do this, again, before anybody says it. No, I'm not praising the Wehrmacht for what they were. Uh, the Germans used to do this even in the later stages of the war. They'd conduct a rapid withdrawal. The Russians would rush in to fill it. They'd overextend themselves. They'd, they'd push their units beyond their own support range. And then they'd come in and they'd chop them to pieces. And this is how traditionally you deal with the Russians once the Russians get into their fix and destroy mindset of we're going to pummel everything with artillery and then creep forward. Well, you entice them to increase the creep. You want them pushing out hard and fast, faster than their artillery can catch up, faster than you know their MLRS can support, and then you annihilate their lead units. 
and then you keep doing that. Yeah. And like I said before, the objective has got to be the destruction of the Russian army. It doesn't matter what territory you lose. You can lose anything you need to and then recapture it once the Russian army has been attrited to so the objective has got to be killing Russia. You know, and I, just quickly, see, to see, I had, Michael Kaufman uh, had mentioned on this last podcast uh, that in Sierra Donetsk, for example, you know, coming through the, the, the primary, the middle part of the assault where some of these conscripts and some of the LPR, whatever they call them, you know, the, the lower quality troops, and that the, what was they were able to piece together with VDV and Wagner were actually doing the flanking maneuvers and the, and the encirclements. Did, did you hear anything about that kind of tactics yet? Yeah, well, that and Michael Kaufman is an excellent analyst. Uh, I highly recommend anybody who who's really interested in this stuff give him a follow. Um, his account is great. I I, lear, I always learn things over there. But yeah, um, they're using these basically conscript militia as cannon fodder, and they're using uh, they're they're better trained regular and, Va- and especially the Wagner uh, to, to flank after the conscripts have fixed them and taken the bulk of the casualties. Yeah, that, that tracks with everything we've been seeing almost since the war in this sector started. Great. Thank you. Moose. No problem. Strange how uh, the, the Russians aren't le- learning their own lessons from 1944. Did we lose? I Moose? mean, no, war is changed. has changed, but people haven't changed, right? People respond to aggression and the psychology of the soldier is no different than the psychology of the soldier a hundred years and the psychology of the soldier a thousand years ago. So insofar as we're talking about human approaches, that's same humans have been, you know, human psychology is not different today than it was since we've had humans. The amygdala is a powerful thing. Reptilian it, brain, it, it, <laughs> you missed that. Yeah, it just, it just seems to me that uh, you, you know they 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 did some they did some impressive things during World War II, if if not like just massacre a bunch of people. <laughs> but uh, you know there 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 were there were a lot of lessons that they paid for in blood, and uh, you know I, I I know like the the, the officer corps of most uh, most Western uh, uh, militaries, you know they go to war college and, and whatnot just to learn that the, these lessons that were paid in blood, like uh, as a as a great big neon warning, like hey don't don't do this shit again. Hey let's not invade Asia in the middle of winter because it doesn't pan out for uh, you know for 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 most armies. You know, uh, stuff like that. Let's let's not attack Vin, uh, Finland when it's uh, you know when it, when it's uh, forty below. Was I muted that in whole time? No, you were good. We got. Let's not attack Finland when it's forty below out, and I totally agree with you, Patrick. Do you have any? Do you have any insight into the into the kind of the uh, the the uh, senior commander shuffle here? I know there was some consolidation, and it didn't look as bad, maybe as dramatic as it was. But do you do you have any do you have any special opinion? Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, things to offer there. Well, I mean, they've been going through command staff, both through, from casualties and from relief at a pretty rapid rate, uh, very rapid when you compare it to uh, the U.S. Or, or any NATO armed force. I know I am going to I'm going to take a huge professional risk and disagree a little bit with uh, ISW's conclusion. ISW thinks this is a, this is evidence of command dysfunction. And it certainly could be, uh, you know. The guy doesn't get it right, you relieve him, and you just find somebody else to stick in there. It's not a functional chain of command. I have a bit of a different take. I th- I think this is the Russians searching for competency in senior command staff, uh, which traditionally they have done. When, the, when they take enough casualties, the war goes badly enough. This is what the Russians have historically done. They've, they've rotated, they, well, they used to just shoot them. Now they at least relieve them, and you know they get to go live off their purloined million that should have gone to military readiness before the war, but that's another issue. Um, and they're, they're bringing up, you know, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel with some of these guys, that rather corpulent uh, senior officer that has been making the rounds is, is a prime example, but they're shuffling people into these slots. And I think they're trying to find competence, which to their credit, that's a healthy thing for an army in as bad a shape as they're in to be doing. Now, whether I'm more right or ISW is, you know, ISW is a hard one to argue with. They're, they're very smart guys um, it's not good. I mean, either way you look at it, it's not, it's not good for them. Uh, the fact that they're having the, these shuffles as frequently as they are is not good. The fact that, 
you know, they keep getting commanders in there who will continually fail to meet operational objectives. That's not good. And that really is the choice. Either you leave them in there to try to learn from their mistakes or you pull them out and put somebody else in there who you think is better suited. And I mean, whatever you think is the motivation behind that cycle, that appears to be what's happening here. They've also taken quite a few senior casualties. Uh, that shouldn't be understated either. And that's that's helping to drive this process. I mean, they've had, somebody has a count on it, like a dozen generals killed, something like that. It, it, the number is atrocious. I, I don't have it in front of me. But it's, it's a significant amount of people. And some of them were reportedly fairly good at their job. And in an army where you have senior leadership who apparently is generally not that good at its job. Finding people who actually are and then losing them obviously has a greater impact than otherwise would. How many officers in NATO wear onesies? Oh, God, that, that picture is just hard to look at. <laughs> yeah. By the uh, way, if, if you're referring to the, uh, the uh, shall we say, rotund general. Uh, yeah, apparently he's either LNR or DNR. Apparently he's not an actual, like, proper Russian military officer. So... It's not as bad. It's still bad, but not as bad. It's it's bad. It's bad. That's a chunky, chunky guy, man. <laughs> yeah, he, he he's a little past the, the husky stage. By the uh, way, I, when I upload the uh, text of the military update from earlier onto my uh, t- uh, Twitter page, um, I'll also include the... Um, the list of the of, of the Russian of the latest Russian command reshuffle as well that I created like three days ago. And are you going to upload a uh, a picture of this combat onesie? Uh, well, I mean, the picture's already all over the place. So now, now seriously, like, are, is this the same dude? Like, we're talking about this onesie. Uh, I didn't look very long at uh, uh, you know Mister Chunks a lot there. Um, is it the same picture we're talking about? I'm not sure. What is the picture that you're talking about? He's if a solid a 350. One, if there's a second one that's that bad, I haven't seen it and I don't want to. <laughs> you you know you want to. <laughs> it, it, it's like an accident. You can't you can't turn your head away. Yeah, from a professionalism standard, that really is kind of a car wreck. Like, they don't make body armor that big. That guy can't fit in plate armor. They They don't make a molly vest. That he needs his own APC. That's his. That's his body, right? body armor. Right. <laughs> if he can, he does not first, so everybody else can get out before he crawls out. Or all the troops fall literally follow behind him in right. in battle. Speaking of onesies, can we all take a a brief second to appreciate the the fact that like the Russian like not the not their combat uniforms but their you know field their service uniforms all look like tracksuits. They look awful. Wow, come on. Nobody's going to laugh at John's joke here. John, I'll laugh at your joke for you. I'm just going to leave you hanging, John. Awkward silence. I'm going to laugh when I meet John here in Dallas pretty soon, whenever he gets gets time. Were, were you cage fighting? Did okay. Did you set up a cage fight with John? No, I've John, still got we, that one with Portland. I'm, I've still got a scheduled fight for Portland for Maria Aid. Right. Uh, Before we go to hands, I need somebody to show me where this amazing picture of this this uh, Russian chonky boy is who deserves his own uh, battle tank just to move around the uh, field. Because I've been looking for it while you were talking about it, and I can't find it. So someone please peek. I'll send it to you, Finance. You'll, yeah. you'll make my day. All right, we're moving to some hands so we can get a productive conversation. V and then Gunther. Hello. Um, Just while we're on the topic of the big guy, um, when that picture came up, I went and just, like, Googled. Somebody had said, He's known by, like, General Pavel. Um, So I went and Googled General Pavel, and I came up with a picture of, I think he was um, a Chechen, uh, no, a Czech um, military leader, ex now, um, who was part of, like, the NATO leadership group, and I swear that it's him but being blown up. 10 times the size that he's meant to be. So, so for anybody sloopy people, go find. <laughs> for anybody that's interested, all you have to do is go to Google and start typing fat Russian and you'll get fat <laughs> Russian general as the very first Boolean search. And there are copious pictures of the man. I think I'm he's standing next to Putin. So you can are they copious pictures though, or is it just the one picture over and over? It's yeah, yeah, same same picture over and over. Unfortunately, but yeah, uh, my God, 
I don't know. It was go now go go look at General Cavell and find the guy that I'm talking about. I swear that somebody has just doctored his photo because the face is identical. But I could be wrong. Anyway, that wasn't what I came up to talk about though. <laughs> okay, well we're gonna debunk this or confirm that this guy's morbidly obese in the next hour. So go ahead. Excellent. I really want to know. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to um, get to the bottom of his waistband. Yay. I'm excited for this. Way, not a bad way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did. I wanted to just back off something that um, Gurney had said before. So it takes us back just a little bit. And it's more for the audience, not necessarily for, you know, all of you guys that are you know, giving up so much time and energy and effort to the space. Um, I sort of found that my defeatist attitude comes in a lot more if I am like sitting in the space and just listening and not actually actioning anything myself. Um, yet when I sort of take all of that emotion and put it into something, even if even if it goes nowhere, like it it's keeping in motion, if that makes sense. So, you know, I'll create a fundraiser for something and, you know, push that for a while. And if I get, you know, somewhere with that, great. But I've expended some of that energy doing something that's worthwhile. And I find if I'm not doing that and I'm sort of sitting and spinning and thinking and thinking and, you know, not really actioning anything, that's when I start to feel that more defeatist attitude. So. I think I'm just sort of saying to everybody in the audience, even if you think it might not make a difference, if you've got something that you think might add some value, just try it because you feel better at the end of the day using some of that emotion in action. That's all. Couldn't agree more. And despite what you think, your elected representatives might respond to a very targeted uh, and sincere communication. I've been pleasantly surprised myself. If you don't get a response immediately, be persistent. Don't be crazy. Don't end up on a list, but uh, keep reaching out. I, I think you could surprise yourself, and I'm speaking from an American perspective. Um, June, go ahead, and then Gunther. I think Gunther was first. Okay, Gunther, and then June. Oh, uh, hi, everyone. Um, actually, this is really it's, it is a question for both June and Patrick, who... Um, uh, I'm curious just to think what you guys think the Ukrainians should, should be doing uh, differently, um, just based upon the kind of current sort of realistic constraints that they have. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, um, and again, this what they should be doing is a is a question we could write books on. So I'll confine myself to ground out specifically in the, in the Donbass, since that's been kind of the point of discussion. If it were me, I, I would do exactly what I, I've been you know, kind of talking around for the past hour or so, you, you use, you, especially if you can use terrain obstacles like rivers to do it because the Russians have proven themselves very inept when it comes to opposed river crossing. I would trade space for time. I would try to suck them out of position as much as possible, displace them from the support range of their own uh, long-range fires, and then once they're outside that protective artillery umbrella, you kill them, and you kill them in numbers. And then you let them retreat, and then you let them push up, and then you do it again, and you keep killing. And they'll, and they'll learn from that, but in the short term, th this has been where Ukraine has gotten its, its best one-sided engagement throughout the entire war, when the Russians were strung out in these long columns pushing into the Ukrainian interior and had left themselves vulnerable. Now, they're in cohesive lines with, good, with what still appears to be fairly good artillery support, though if the Ukrainians keep knocking out ammo dumps, which is been their response to this which is a good one um as far as it goes then that may change we'll have to see nobody really knows what the russian uh, uh artillery munitions park looks like for sure but you know there are some indications that even they can't shoot forever uh, but yeah I, I when someone wants to conduct positional warfare which is what the russians are doing now and it works for them you have to draw them out of position this again this is just basics you draw them out of position if you can you suck their lead units over a river, destroy the bridge behind them, and then basically kill everyone on your side of the river. Uh, this is I get, this is how you deal with someone who's doing with what the Russians are doing. Sounds like a bullfight. 
Say, so, so Patrick, I was going to ask you, was part of my question was when you look at the map of that, you know, that whole, uh, you know, area that looks like a V, you know, coming out of Severo Donetsk and, and it, that, that uh, Venturi that kind of comes that way, you know, that just looks awful to me as, as a layperson, just with the, you know, you're going to be surrounded on three sides all the way back. How do you, how, how, do, how do you think about that piece of map? you know, from Liman and, you know, all the way down to where it crosses the gap into the other side. Well, I mean, you're not wrong. It's a bit of a mess. Uh, and yeah, being surrounded on three sides is never great, especially when the enemy enjoys uh, significant artillery support. The saving grace of the Ukrainians is they also have a river on three sides. They're at, well, two sides at least. And so again, for the Russians to really exploit that, they'd have to conduct an opposed river crossing and we saw what happened the last time they did that. And they probably remember what happened the last time they did that. They lost the best part of two battalion tactical groups. So they're not going to try that again in a hurt. Unfortunately, they will shell the bejesus out of that pocket from three sides. So to my mind, that is what the Germans used to call a Kessel. Yeah. Uh, basically a, a, a pocket that you surround and bombard into oblivion and then you assault and destroy it. The Russians appear to be trying to affect that same kind of maneuver and there's no way in hell the Ukrainians should let them do it. Uh, if they can't counterattack, and they, they may honestly just not have the, the troops available. And it, it, in, indeed, it might be smarter to save those guys for when the Russians are not all massed together to counterattack. But in any case, I, I would not stay in that pocket. That's a shooting gallery. Hey, um, yeah, the, I, I, I can, I definitely agree with that. Um, I imagine them this this fall when it's rainy and soggy and having them all strung out in some Ukrainian muddy fields where they can't get their trucks or artillery in. Um, hey, and just on a personal note, Patrick, uh, I, I just want to say I really appreciate what you have to say and contribute and. Um, I think we're probably on the opposite end of the political spectrum on several things, but um, it's really good to feel that we're both on the right side of this. So thank you. It's also called a cauldron. Yes, that, that was, that was the English word I was searching for. Thank you, Ryan. Um, and yeah, Gunther, I, I, again, I will come on left spaces, right spaces, uh, you know, unaligned. I don't care uh, in my humble opinion, my function here is as an analyst and being as cold-hearted and and, and and just matter of fact as possible has been the thing that serves me best as far as the and you, you i will say one thing that i'll shut up you brought up a good thing about the mud that's the that's the genuine danger right now everything's dried out everything's dried out if the russians are going to push now is the time and they are pushing so they may not give the ukrainians until the fall in order to re reorganize and get themselves in, in, into better uh, defensive positions there, there is a clock on this. Uh, the Russians seem to have understand it after starting too late. Uh, they should have started several weeks before they did. And they obviously got held up in the mud and, and there wasn't as, as good a freeze as they likely thought they were going to get over the winter, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, the ground is dry now and the Ukrainians are going to have to contend with that. I don't think they were clock watching good enough in the beginning, so... Um, they may be trying to work it to their advantage at this point. But oh, I agree with that, Ryan. Given what uh, Patrick, excuse me, Patrick, what John Spencer told us when he came in about uh, the Ukrainians deliberately blowing those three dams in order to control the battle space, I, I think they deserve uh, a lot of credit for their foresight and their strategy in that. And I would hope that their innate knowledge of their own country will continue to play to their advantage well that's not something to look at lightly lightly rather the ukrainians have been willing to blow bridges in the past but they've been very very reluctant to blow dams previously uh so the fact that they're now doing that to me indicates how seriously they're taking this uh from a defender standpoint that they're willing to destroy that kind of infrastructure well and i think he was remarking on that in when he was reporting back on his study about the battle of kiev when he went over and visited uh, around the area. We had asked for some of his initial thoughts on coming back. He chimed in with us from an airport in Warsaw, and uh, I quizzed him on the two Aleutian planes that we thought were shot, shot down in the first couple of days of the war, and he had mentioned that as best he could determine it was only one plane and not two. But uh, then another thing that he had mentioned on uh, himself was that he was kind of surprised that they had blown 
three waterways in order to kind of bog down the Russians, which I thought was uh, a pretty out front but successful decision. Uh, we've got hands up. Let's, I think V and then Liberal was next. Oh, uh, June, did you have a follow up question? I know you responded, uh, you got asked a question there. Well, yeah, uh, June was next. I, I uh, look, I, I'm, I, I'm, I don't have, I, I don't have a, what they should be doing. I mean, Patrick, just so you know where I stand. I mean, I, I per- think that I don't think this will happen, but I, I believe that, you know, genocide is committed and being committed. And that uh, enabling Ukraine to win the war over time is different than saying that I want to stop genocide because we can stop that today if we want to. And I believe that a coalition of the willing or the U.S., and NATO, whatever, that we could put, we could, we could, without putting the ground, we could put, we could uh, establish air superiority. And if we wanted to, with a clear communication to the Russian government where we are to not to pass these borders, but we could have, we could wipe out the Eastern Donbass in probably about a week, you know, with five or 10,000 cruise missiles and God knows, you know, just air, you know, air attrition, air, any aircraft attrition, you know, I think we could actually stop. Okay. So that's kind of my view. I think that escalation fears leading to whatever, I, I think that is reformation. Um, and that's where I stand on that. I think we can do this. I don't think we will do it, but I think it should be done. Um, but my, my, I digress, but the, uh, without a boot on the ground, because people kept saying, I always talk about boots on the ground. I've never said boots on the ground, except Patriot missile batteries to get flown into some of these airports. But, uh, you know, the mud you're talking about, I think is a really big deal. And it ties in with what you were talking about earlier about your seasoned combat vets, because when the counterattack comes, you know, there's going to be a greater need for APCs and infantry fighting vehicles that I don't think they're up to where they need to be for a major counteroffensive with those guys. But once that mud hits, you know, you know, you could be lo- you could be looked at a frozen conflict.